0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Leon Kalankowitz is Scientific Director of Numbers USA and Vice President of Scientists and Environmentalists for Population Stabilization. He's also a consulting environmental scientist and natural resources planner. Leon has assisted U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the preparation of long-term management plans for habitat, wildlife populations, and public use at more than 40 national wildlife refuges in many states and territories. He's the author of two books and chapters and three other books, scores of technical environmental reports, a dozen studies on population growth and urban sprawl, and hundreds of articles. Today continues a thread of chats on Rewilding Earth podcast with population experts searching for a thread of more effective conversations about human population and its impact on the natural world. The last conversation I had on population was with Chris Tucker a couple of episodes ago, and we talked about a lot of new things that you don't get to talk about much because this can be a very, very contentious topic, as we all know. What are some interesting conversations you've had that have kind of steered away from the contentious parts of it, and were very, very productive.
1: Well, one of the conversations I had was about twenty years ago with my old uh, mentor at the University of British Columbia, up in Canada, Bill Reese, uh, who later went on to found uh, the ecological, co-found the ecological footprint uh, concept and analysis with Mathis Wackernagel, one of his PhD students. And uh, Bill was visiting Washington D.C. Uh, late '90s, and said to me, if 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 there's no other book you can read about humanity's uh, environmental or ecological plight, I would recommend a book by uh, sociology professor, William R. Catton, Jr., entitled Overshoot, The Ecological Basis of uh, Revolutionary Change. And I'd seen that on our bookshelves and uh, you know, along with hundreds of other books I meant to get to someday. And after my friend and mentor's recommendation, I grabbed that book off the shelf took it home and began devouring it and and learned uh, to look at the human uh, predicament, uh, ecological predicament in in a different way than I had before. And in a way that didn't just uh, uh, sort of fall into a blame game. He looked at Homo sapiens as uh, an anthropologist or a scientist from Mars, might look at any species here on this planet, planet or in this biosphere as one that endowed with new capacities and new technologies was overshooting its carrying capacity in a way that we see in in nature all the time. When uh, species get to islands and endowed with resources, uh, there there are many, many instances of this in nature. And then you get, if there are no predators and no other, nothing else to, raise the death rate for a while, you'll get rapid population growth. And that is what we are seeing in homo sapiens, or as Bill Catton, the author of that book, Overshoot, called it, called us, uh, tongue in cheek, homo colossus. We were no hmm. longer just homo sapiens, but with this technological prowess at our fingertips, each and every per- person exerted far more of an ecological load on the planet than our hunter-gatherer predecessors had. So the nice thing about this formulation was that it uh, captured both the population and the consumption aspects of, again, uh, environmental degradation or uh, destruction of uh, ecological capital, natural capital. So I found that to be particularly useful and it, 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 pulled me away from this tendency that I too had to, to look for scapegoats here, um, to to be blaming all of humanity or to be blaming particular as, uh, uh, groups within humanity for the predicament that we find ourselves in and still entirely haven't found a way out of yet.
0: We got past having to look over our shoulders all the time for danger. Um right. We got rid of a lot of danger that faced us. We wiped things out um, that got in our way, and we didn't just become the top predator on the planet. We became unparalleled. We, we became um, a, apart from um, our ability to be easily challenged. And certainly extincted, <laughs> maybe, yeah. is, a, is a good made-up word. <laughs> um, and and yeah. doesn't that then fall back on us to use yeah. this awareness that we have that seems right. to be fairly unique am, um, among our species, that we have to do the job of what uh, disease or predators or things would do to other populations. We have to do that ourselves. We have to show some restraint ourselves. That's Correct. a first for a species, isn't it?
1: Yeah, 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 we have to exercise a wisdom. I'm, I'm not the first to say this, but humanity, uh, Homo sapiens is right in our, our scientific or Latin name is a clever species, but not a particularly wise species. We haven't been able to exercise that self-restraint that you mentioned because throughout our evolutionary history, we never had to, right? Over tens of thousands of generations, the struggle was to survive uh, to, uh, and, and flourish We left uh, part of uh, Homo sapiens, left Africa 50 to 70,000 years ago and began its march across the planet, um, acting as hunter gatherers. And even before the agricultural revolution, eight to 10,000 years ago, we'd already wiped out hundreds of megafauna, right? Species that we competed with or species that we ate, species that were a threat to us. Uh, Even with nothing, you know, little more than stones and spear tips and lances and later bows and arrows, we were able to assume that supreme role. But uh, again, no one, you know, a hunter-gatherer tribe in Croatia south of the glaciers during the Pleistocene wouldn't have known what other uh, human beings are doing in uh, North America or South America or Australia each each tribe each village each cave was trying to survive on its own and using the tools that nature nature gave it so again tens of thousands of generations of this and just in the last really since the industrial revolution but uh you know with the antecedents dating back to the agricultural revolution several thousand years ago we are having to only now check ourselves check this ability to be quote-unquote, too smart for our own good, and I believe that's the title of uh, an environmental philosopher in Sweden, former Canadian by the name of uh, Craig Dilworth, that didn't have a very happy ending because he didn't uh, think there was much prospect of our learning in time to avoid ecological calamity and collapse.
0: It's really strange as uh, culture clashes with biology, and there's so many examples of Uh, People trying to sort out why humans do the things we do, how we react in situations, how we use technology to dominate our environment around us, um, and technology too. So culture and technology and all these things combined with a very, very old soul uh, called a species (laughs) that has evolved over millennia, long, long times, long periods of time. And uh, the body... The deep body the subconscious even seems to want to do its procreation thing and just like any species uh, on the planet wants to do and is biologically driven to do and then we have this awareness this consciousness of ourselves and what we're doing and then we have then we throw in our culture around that which is kind of like here's the manifestation here's how we language how we procreate like crazy and how our mission seems to be from another planet looking down would be like, well, all these guys want to do is just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. grow. That's, that's plainly um, the, the outward thing that our species is giving off. If anything else, it's just weird to watch all of these, this very old biology combined with this culture stuff that we, the the religions that we use to, to procreate and, and grow and everything. I'm not saying it as well as you will, but is there anything to what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think all, all religions, just to cite one um, part of culture, are pronatalist. That is encouraging their members to, uh, you know, their as we would say in Spanish, to go out and um, to, uh, how does it go, and multiply and uh, replenish the earth, as in uh, Genesis, I believe it is, in the Bible. And I think pretty much everyone is the same way because they wanted to have as many followers as possible in a world that is often hostile to them and filled with other religions or cultures, uh, villages, uh, tribes trying to do the same thing. So, it, it, and there is something to be said for power or strength in numbers, right? To a point until you start to exhaust the resources that it takes to maintain those numbers. If there are enough of you, then you have enough cannon fodder to resist attacks by other hostile groups, or go and take their territory from them. And we find it not only in human beings, of course, but uh, studies uh, done of uh, chim- chimpanzee uh, uh, groups in, in Africa have shown similar behaviors there. So it's not something that, again, that we need to feel that we uh, that we need to feel guilty for as human beings. Uh, we have this ancient biology that uh, at a time when other species and other environmental checks were there to keep populations in check and, and keep a relative uh, home- homeostasis or, or balance of competing organisms in an ecosystem or a community, uh, then uh, th- that w- it was important to have that or you would die out and be extirpated or go extinct altogether. Uh, It's just that in the case of humanity, with our opposable thumbs, these brains that grew massively in the last uh, several hundred thousand years, it's like uh, nature outwitted itself in a sense. We're not going anywhere. There's no other earth out there to uh, move off to now. Uh, We have got to make it here. This is uh, the the final frontier. And we've got to somehow find a way of reining in these passions and these um, instincts to always be expanding our power and our numbers. And again, numbers are a vehicle to greater power, which is inherent I think in, in the human condition and psyche and again, in other, other species as well. Somehow we've got to reckon with that and uh, it may not come easily or, or maybe we can never do it. But I think um, you know the challenge is there and those of us who Care about a viable biosphere filled not just with, you know, 7 billion or 8 billion human beings living on the planet in a sustainable way, but allowing the space, the resources, the ecosystems for our fellow travelers here on this planet, uh, whirling through space, to uh, continue to survive and, and evolve as well.
0: You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of Wildlands Protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends the militaristic view the protectionist view of the more the better the stronger we are as we grow our tribes right that carryover never really accounted for the force multipliers that we developed like gunpowder and like you know for that particular reason we wanted protection and we wanted that strength in numbers as you said and then we got that we started to develop we got more people then we started to develop force multipliers and we still kept on going with the more people thing.
1: That's and, right. Yeah. And it's
0: like we we never realized, wait a minute, why we started doing this. And then we started to tell ourselves different stories about why we were doing this, why we were growing. Now we need to grow because it says here in this Bible, or it says over here in this. And there's there's compounded ways that society and culture tell us from birth what we must do. And what we must do is guilt trip people who who are saying they they might not have kids and and say weird things like you're being selfish. Like, (laughs) that doesn't even make sense. That's never made sense to me. But I hear women get told that quite a bit. I've heard a woman get told that in my presence before, so I know it exists. And it's so strange. It's like such a twisted logic, but we have twisted ourselves into pretzels justifying this ever growth. Economists love to do it. And once we had the force, multipl- force multipliers in place for economies to grow really big and strong, two things weren't accounted for. We don't, all, we don't need all this people power anymore to generate value in an economy like we did before, because we have these force multipliers um, that that grow economies um, and, and all of the different efficiencies that we developed to do that. And uh, and now we have these economies that depend on more bodies to fill banks, to take out loans, to, to generate interest and right. put batteries in this big machine that we created and inadvertently, not thinking at all about how its creation or growth would affect literally biodiversity. Um, those two worlds don't even collide to even make that question possible. Economists are so far removed, in my view, of so many real world things. <laughs> that it yeah, doesn't
1: even, yeah.
0: it doesn't even make sense to them why we would be talking about biodiversity when we're talking about economies because they just think one way about these things, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. They have a, a, a narrow view of what it means to be human and to survive on this planet and really a lack of in, interest in and ignorance about the biophysical milieu that makes our survival and our prospering possible. Uh, it's only been in... Well, not, not quite true. There, there have been economists and philosophers throughout history who have recognized the, the role of the environment in human well being and what we now call sustainability. But mainstream or sometimes called neoclassical economics discounts the environment, the earth, the biosphere, resources as little more than another factor of production, right? That can be substituted for by capital that is land and resources aren't important, you can simply uh, replace them or substitute capital for them. And there, in that world view is just such a, a profound ignorance about the shoulders that we stand on in developing this complex uh, interconnected uh, global now industrialized economy. There was an infamous remark a few years ago by an economist Nobel Prize winning economist, Robert Solow, I believe was his name. Uh, and this is back in the 70s or 80s. He made a sort of a flip remark that the world can get along now, in effect, without natural resources. And what he was driving at, again, with this narrow view, was that the natural resource sector of the economy, you know, the raw materials as a portion or a percentage of the overall economic output, the GDP was growing, was shrinking smaller and smaller. And therefore, yeah, air didn't matter. Water didn't matter. Uh, the fossil fuels that <laughs> fueled the population explosion and much of the economic growth, explosive economic growth of the last two centuries didn't matter because what this economist saw was that they, wow, they're just 3% of the economy. Let's just get rid of that 3%. If, if we were to get rid of that 3%, we still have 97% of the economy, which is growing. So that is the uh, the world view that ecological economists, beginning back in the 1960s, took issue with because they were grounded in a much more ecocentric uh, view of the world, starting with people like Kenneth Boulding, the fellow who famously, uh, former president of the American Economics Association, a professor of economics at the University of Colorado at Boulder, who made the uh, made that famous quip that. Um, uh, to the effect that only madmen and economists believe that growth can continue forever. Words to that effect. Mm-hmm. And then you know, there were other four uh, pioneers like Herman E. Daly, Louisiana State University, later the World Bank, and then the University of Maryland, who began to develop what we call steady state economics, which looked to minimize, which saw the human economic system is embedded within the global ecosystem the ecosphere or the biosphere right and inherently limited by it and began to look uh, look you know at sustainability environmental sustainability as a goal and and trying to conceive of ways where it would be possible to minimize the so-called throughput of the flow that is of energy and materials through the economy while maintaining a reasonably stable and satisfactory standard of living and quality of life uh, but they have been this has been an i've been calling an emerging field for for decades now it's been around 50 years it has never been accepted by mainstream or neoclassical economics so it's been um given short shrift uh, marginalized and you know who knows what it'll take for this very sensible form of economics to become the mainstream
0: None of the progress that we talk about on these types of chats is possible without uh, governments and without politics. I mean, that's just the way, and I think that's one of the reasons that uh, what you just said is so true. We've made, it's been out there, but we've made no progress whatsoever on it all this time because uh, the people who don't want to talk about it have found it very easy to bury the topic. I mean, what level of change are we looking at here?
1: Uh, I would say a profound, fundamental or revolutionary change, Jack, and maybe we can do it in an evolutionary manner. But the fact is that both mainstream political parties and all of the non-mainstream ones are wedded to growth. They are equally wedded to growth. Everyone believes, and there's some truth to this, that a rising tide lifts all boats, as it is said, but there isn't any acceptance, again, this is on the part of both Democrats and Republicans, to say nothing of libertarians or or, or others, even Greens nowadays, there is no acceptance that that tide can't rise forever. Where is the water going to come from? And and more generally, where where are the resources going to come from? Uh, So a lot of the supporters of this incoming administration, of course, are thrilled to get rid of um, the Trump administration and its many atrocities vis-a-vis the environment, but still you are dealing with political interests here that are very much wedded to this model, uh, neoliberal, as you called it, model of growth uh, uh, ad infinitum, right? And it can't happen in a finite world without major hell to pay. So over the, I've, I've always taken the long range view of this I wasn't as freaked out when the Trump administration came in because I'd lived through eight years of the Reagan administration back in the early and well throughout the eighties, pretty much most of it. And uh, Trump uh, in my view is worse than Reagan for the environment and sustainability, but you know, the earth and even wilderness areas in this country survived uh, eight years of Reagan in the 1980s. Uh, but we still didn't get off the unsustainable track that we are on Uh, both in terms of this ideological addiction to growth, and you took the words out of my mouth when you said worshiping at the altar of growth, or as the great uh, population pundit and physicist, Al Bartlett used to put it, in growth we trust. That's our Mm. facto national motto, not in God we trust. Uh, So, um, and what what the Democrats, uh, just to criticize them for a moment here, seem to have forgotten is that population is part of the picture. Liberals uh, slash Democrats at one time were very supportive of the population issue, of, of acknowledging that there were limits to population growth, and it would be better for us to voluntarily abide by those limits rather than having nature do it in a, you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse type way. But as a result of um, the changing demographics of the country, Democrats two, three, four decades ago, and, and liberals and even the environmental community itself began to pull away from or distance itself from the, the notion that it was very important to stabilize United States population and maybe even shrink it to a more manageable and ecologically sustainable size, say 100 million to 200 million. Still a lot more people than the, uh, the critters were, we would have displaced but a lot better than the 330 million that we're at now and climbing with no end in sight by 20 to 30 million every decade. And Democrats and, and even environmental groups, as I say, seem to have no problem with that. They believe that we can be technological wizards and enact all manner of techno fixes, green energy uh, you know, on steroids, plaster the landscape with wind turbines and photoelectric volta- uh, panels uh, and that'll take care of everything with no need to limit our wants and demands, including the want for ever more children or ever larger population in the country. So again, kind of stepping back and looking at things more from a long-term perspective, although I'm happy that this administration, at least superficial, not just superficially, war is an important issue. I work as a wildlife biologist in Alaska, and I would hate to see oil drilling on you know the Arctic Plain there, north of the, the Brooks Range, uh, that's the grandest wilderness left in North America, perhaps. Uh, and, and many I'll be happy to see greater support for renewable energy. Although I'm not convinced that uh, renewable energy is even enough to see us through. It as has been noted by other engineers and um, environmental scientists. Well, the energy sources, the sun and the wind that we are tapping into will last as long as the sun does, another few billion years, according to the astronomers. The materials it takes to build those contraptions, wind turbines, photoelectric, uh, photovoltaic panels, etc., are not renewable. And uh, they, they tend to wear out in a matter of 10 to 30 years and have to be replaced. That is a big uncertainty, I think, uh, dogging uh, renewable energy. and We're still too new at that game to be able to be certain whether or not it can do the heavy lifting given our our current population size and concentrations. So I don't think we can just assume that it's a savior or a silver silver bullet. Uh,
0: Everybody's heard this stuff. Everybody hears it every Earth Day. All of these numbers come out. Everybody goes crazy for a day and then they all go right back to everything before. Maybe it's a storytelling thing. Maybe we have to capture people's imagination of what could be. Do you ever fantasize about what a society of the future, taking into account everything that you know and everything that you've talked about today, what does some of that look like? How can you language that for
1: us? Well, I do think it is possible to maintain a positive or optimistic outlook towards the future, uh, even recognizing that we must quote unquote live within limits, right? We accept that with regard to our own lives as individual human beings, nobody ever expects or demands to be able to live forever. We accept that after uh, 70 years, 90 years, what have you, and it's increased thanks to all of these, you know, improvements in nutrition and medical technology that we accept that at some, some time our days must end, but that we as individuals, can still lead fulfilling lives. And that if anything for it to last forever would fill us with ennui and with boredom. So I think it's possible to feel that way about human civilization as a whole and with, with regard to the, the planet or the biosphere as a whole and look at this magnificent oasis of life we have in a vast uh, desert as it were of cosmos out there on which as of yet, uh, we have found no evidence of life anywhere else. Uh, There is something called the rare earth hypothesis that the conditions, uh, you know, the astronomical and geological uh, conditions that occurred here on earth may be exceedingly rare throughout the, you know, the galaxy and even the universe beyond that. Uh, But even if it isn't, the fact is that uh, Again, we, all we have to do is look at the other planets in this solar system to know how special a place this is and that we need to revere it, revere it and, and, and treat it as good stewards and as children of that planet. Uh, hence the, the Gaia hypothesis of uh, James Lovelock, the, uh, the British atmospheric scientist and um, Lynn Margulis co-invented that concept. So I think there are ways of doing this uh, without having to be thought of as tree huggers, right? We've gotta be both pragmatic, but be guided by kind of a long-term spiritual wisdom that uh, you know, may actually be in, in younger generations and even some of us older folks beginning to emerge as the, the, the multiple sort of uh, encroaching crises that we face get ever closer and bear down on us
0: tell us what kind of homework you would like everybody listening to this to do to learn more about the particular ways in which you're concerned with and working on the population and biodiversity issues.
1: I've done a number of studies looking at how um, population growth in various cities and states of the country has uh, uh, driven uh, rates of sprawl that gobbles up and permanently devours Uh, open space, uh, which is made up of important agricultural land and natural habitat. But more broadly, I I would encourage people to look at some of the environmental philosophers and this idea of of, uh, carrying capacity, which I think is very important because it it relates to truly what our long-term prospects are here. And one can certainly look that up online. I I would highly recommend this book I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, uh, Overshoot, the Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change by um, by William R. Catton, Jr. The foreword in that original edition, University of Illinois Press, 1981, was written by none none other than Stuart Udall, the former Secretary of the Interior Mm -hmm. under the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. And a very, very you know, kind of profound and, and, and love the, both of those you know, t- two people I admire very much and had the great pleasure of knowing and getting to work with early in my career, both of them. I, uh, I just admire their, the, the, the wisdom that, uh, that exudes from those pages.
0: Uh, Leon, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. And I hope you come back.
1: Thank you, Jack. Real pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes go to rewilding.org/pod that's rewilding.org/p o d